Well, this is Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant. With me, as always, is uh, the great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. And uh, Henry French is uh, twisting the dials And uh, today. And um, with us is also Martin Fritzen, Marty Fritzen, who is, uh, I think, up to book number eight. Well, the next one I do will be eight, yeah. not counting edited. <laughs> okay. Well, this is a, a picking top stocks is number seven, is it? Yeah. yeah. And is it... Uh, as with children, one loves them all equally, or do you have a favorite among your your uh, canon? Well, I think, think about that more. I, I don't want I don't want, a, I don't want an answer right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. just think about it for a second. Right. Evan, we we went to press last night, if memory serves, right? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah, um, another little miracle in the can, correct? Always surprised when it happens. I know. And uh, one of the things we wrote about was uh, apparently there's a hot stock called Nvidia, and, and maybe Marty Fritzen has a thought on this. But what our thinking has been, um, I credit um, and thank. Uh, our associate uh, James Robertson Jr. for rec- not he I was going to say recall he 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 wasn't even born in two thousand and one for Pete's sake but uh, our young and gimlet-eyed associate James Robertson uh, surfaced this great comment that some of you may recall from the uh, uh, the sad introspective aftermath of the dot com bubble of the late 90s and early aughts. And Scott McNeely is the author of this comment. He's a CEO and co-founder of Sun Microsystems. And he was, uh, he was uh, pronouncing a post-mortem on the burst bubble. And uh, he was ruefully and exasperatingly, um, but memorably recalling uh, the valuation of the stock. It was 10 times revenue. Not earnings. No, 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 not earnings. Sales. Right. Top line. And here's what he said. Quote, now, to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay 100% of revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. It assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. It assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. And that assumes you pay no taxes in your dividends, which is kind of illegal, etc. It goes on like this. All right, that was, what was the multiple, Evan? Uh, 10 times. 10 times, yeah. So this is... Uh, among other things, a market of seeming typographical errors. <laughs> Tell me, if you can, remember, Evan, what is the multiple on Nvidia? That's the vowel in the first one. Okay. So uh, I'm going to consult artificial intelligence for one second. Uh, it says 37. No, can't be. <laughs> yeah, 37 ser- no, times. Ser- seriously, what is the multiple to sales? Yeah, the, 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 the enterprise value to revenue. Now, we're going to take the sales off the table. It's 37. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, we, we, have to, we have to talk to Scott McNeely and say, all right, now what, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny how uh, stock prices and introspection are uh, negatively correlated? The, the more that one goes up, the more the other goes down. We wrote something about um, the, uh, the aftermath of 2001. It had to do with a counting tutorial. Um, it was uh, Morgan Stanley was hosting this thing. They had hired a guy uh, from uh, Columbia, a guy, probably some eminent professor, who was um, all about accounting and analysis, kind of a Graham and Dodd figure. And he gave this uh, this symposium on how to analyze a financial statement. <laughs> All these people turned up. They what? All right, we ought to be here, I guess. <laughs> and um, and we talked about. Um, so I, I I quoted somebody who was there, and uh, he um, he talked about uh, this, this fellow remembered my informant remembered a particularly sorrowful figure in the audience who couldn't find a seat and was sitting on the carpet in the next, next to the uh, rows of seats. And um, and um, and at the end of it, the uh, he said the penitent got up from his seat and found there was chewing gum on his trousers, and I think that is. 
That serves them right, right? For not for waiting to the end of the cycle to figure out what a balance sheet is. Didn't seem to matter during the levitation. We, we actually saw something similar. So if you remember, uh, was it late 2019 when WeWork was about to list shares and then that prospectus came out and everybody laughed at their community-adjusted EBITDA? Well, for that brief time, there was like a brief turndown in kind of valuations and fundraising for venture capital. The New York Times had this wonderful little uh, story where they interviewed a bunch of venture capitalists, and they said the venture capitalists are, for the first time many in their careers, looking at something called gross profit margins. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Welcome, Martin Fritzen. Delighted to be here. Yeah. Marty Fritzen, as everyone knows, is the uh, dean of high yield on Wall Street and a uh, double Harvard man, Harvard times two, uh, undergraduate MBA, and worked all over Wall Street and has done entrepreneurship things as well on Wall Street, but throughout has managed to fuse a career in serious academic inquiry with you know, a little bit of money making. You know, nothing wrong with that. So um, to begin with, we want to talk about your new book, the little book, not so little, by the way, little in size, but not in content, the little book of picking top stocks. So uh, we'll get around to that in just one moment. Marty, how do you see the uh, this anomalous high yield market? It's very strange. Uh, the uh, Bloomberg uh, economist uh, put a uh, surveyed uh, by Bloomberg, uh, put a 65% probability on recession within 12 months, and the trend is upward. It was uh, up from 60% in uh, on March 28th, and yesterday the spread versus Treasuries on the uh, ISP of A high yield index was exactly equal to the median for all non-recession months. Uh, now, you'd think that if there was some meaningful probability of recession built into that, it would be somewhat greater than the median, somewhere in between the, media, the, the recession level and the non-recession level. But uh, there's no reflection of that well, at all. Well, well, Marty, is it possible that people are reading the uh, economist consensus in a contrary fashion as one might? Well, they uh, could well be doing that. It's hard to get to what's inside people's brains about their uh, expectations on the recession. I think that uh, you see in the stock market as well, a, um, in my view, overly optimistic view about how soon the Fed will not only stop raising rates, but turn around and start lowering rates, maybe as early as uh, next month in uh, people's minds. And this is leaving out any consideration of the lagged effects of what has already happened, which we don't know for certain, what will it will be, but the fact that we haven't yet seen falling off a cliff the economy doesn't mean that you won't have a hard landing as a result of what the Fed has done. In the issue of grants we just published, um, Evan uh, worked up a terrific uh, story on uh, on private uh, credit and private equity um, and the rating agencies and the overlap among those institutions and QCIP numbers. Uh, Evan, what, what about uh, did you discover um, in the way of a working hypothesis concerning uh, the influence of private private credit, so-called, like private debt. They don't use debt. Debt is a, or you don't use credit is the more dignified. But private uh, credit versus a public high yield. Um, it seems like they're kissing cousins. They're exactly the same things, although people seem to think that private credit for some reason is just a better asset class with higher yields and lower defaults and a, a better overall track uh, record than pr uh, public credit. Now, in their favor, they do cite the fact that private credit has lower defaults, but the problem is it's private credit funds that compile those stats. And they often <laughs> don't include when they, you know, change the maturity date on loans or lower interest rates or offer, you know, payment holidays. Things that, you know, a rating agency might say that, that that's a selective default or that's a distressed debt exchange, that things that would, in the public markets, count as defaults. So, 
on its own scorecard, you know, with a little asterisk at the bottom, it is a better asset class. But otherwise, it's pretty much exactly the same. But the one thing some practitioners told us was, because private credit was essentially the only game in town this year, um, I, I think there was a Carlisle analysis we cited that said something like, of buyouts funded in the first quarter, I think 90% or so yeah. by count yeah. were funded by private credit, and by dollar volume, something like 70%. And one of the private credit guys we uh, spoke to agreed with you that spreads on high-yield bonds are too low, but he says it's because private credit has stolen all the oxygen in the room, and all of the illiquidity premium that used to go for thinly traded bonds and loans is now in this other asset class. It's a Bitcoin gold uh, problem. <laughs> yeah, p people who thought that uh, Bitcoin was the next gold and then lost the house. <laughs> we talked about this, Martin. Have, have you uh, changed your view? Uh, you're, you're, you were you're searching for facts when we last spoke about the relationship between uh, private credit on the one hand and the anomalously tight spreads, one, as one might hypothesize, on the other. Have you come to a conclusion about how private credit figures into our world today? Well, I think it is making some incursions, uh, and this is an inherent problem uh, when you're using any kind of historically based analysis that here's uh, an element that really wasn't there in the past of changing things. So you have to be conscious of that. And, um, uh, you know, I, it, no question that uh, as uh, the leveraged loan market in uh, the last several years has uh, taken over some of the space uh, formerly occupied by high-yield bonds, when you talk about volume of issuance and so on, um, you know, maybe you have to look at both uh, the loans and the, the bonds together in some sense. All right, but let's get down to business here. Martin has written not one but two books about billionaires, like how to become one. And I think the other one was how to be like one, you know, or how to make friends with one. No, it was not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, can we get right down to how do you become one? Well, uh, not by trading your personal account. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's uh, you can marry okay. one. Uh, yeah, that works. Uh, you can <laughs> inherit a billion uh, plus. But um, no, in that book, I uh, did point out I, I was uh, ridiculed in one review mm -hmm. by uh, pointing out hard work as being one of the <laughs> characteristics. Very, I think I think what you meant to say, Martin, was very hard work. Very, yeah, extremely hard. I mean, these people were obsessive. I mean, it didn't happen by accident. So there's no guarantee that working hard will make you a billionaire, but. Uh, unless you get, go by one of those uh, routes of marrying or inheriting it, uh, you won't get there without working very hard. Uh, but I, I, I ran through a number of characteristics uh, that I found uh, in, uh, in those uh, and uh, being willing to uh, roll the dice, you know, not settle when you're worth a paltry $100 million, but really putting it on the line. Do you remember uh, Fred Schwed's uh, Where Are the Customers' Yachts? Of course you do. Yeah, so sure, it's one, yeah, of the, yeah. one of the great books about Wall. So in it, he in, he um, he reflects on this funny, funny turn of, of temperament that would make somebody risk a first precious million for a second redundant one. This is book came out first 1940. <laughs> so a million dollars was, was then something. It, wasn't, it wouldn't spit at like you would, <laughs> would today. But uh, so that's, yeah, right. So so uh, uh, John Paulson was, a li was the avatar, the living avatar of that particular temperament in the great trade he made in 2000 and uh, I guess seven, eight, and nine. I think one time he was up uh, what, um, I don't know, $30 billion. I'm going to make some of this up, but uh, not so far in order of magnitude. And uh, I imagined uh, Mrs. Paulson talking to him one evening when he was home from work. <laughs> and the conversation might go something like, um, how, is, how are we doing today, uh, John? Well, the mark is, uh, is $30 million, but I think it's getting a lot better. <laughs> well, 
I'm not sure it has to get a lot better. We've done the curtains. We have, we have <laughs> you know, 14 residences. You know, I, I you know, actually, he's a very unassuming character. I don't think they have four. But anyway, like that. So why are we why are we doing any more exactly? But there, that, that, something about the game itself, right? And so, yeah. Yeah, there really is. It's a, a mentality, a, 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 certain, a special kind of drive uh, for those uh, individuals. And uh, but, you know, that's one of several characteristics. I mean, one very important uh, factor was keeping control uh, as uh, Bill Gates did with Microsoft. In other words, he didn't give it all away to the uh, venture capitalists, but kept enough of it that he became you know, ex extraordinarily wealthy. Yeah, yeah. Another, another uh, before we get into um, how to pick tough stuff, I want to ask you, which is your, your favorite investment illusion? Now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Marty has written a book about investment illusion, but I'm a little surprised it was only one volume. <laughs> but tell us about um, some of your favorite all-time investment illusions, and are any relevant at the moment? Oh, well, yeah, I think uh, uh, they're, they're very relevant. Um, the um, uh, I, I think right now in uh, particular, the uh, il illusion of, um, you know, stocks just being able to go up, uh, you know, without uh, the sort of uh, historical, you know, historically validated uh, criteria. Now, as I was saying a moment ago, things do change in the system and you have to be prepared to adjust. But um, I think we've seen uh, enough cases in the past of uh, valuations that rose, um, uh, you know, with, without the uh, real possibility where, where you could objectively say that uh, the, the, uh, the growth rates embedded in the stock prices were not sustainable. You'd, re, uh, for one thing, reach a point of saturation in the marketplace, but uh, you could document that stocks continue to rise or assumed uh, uh, growth uh, that was literally uh, in, physically impossible. Um, so I think that's a, uh, a concern right now, particularly when you look at the uh, uh, the impact of AI and some of the growth assumptions built in. Was it Edward McCory who we've uh, cited a few times? He's a emeritus professor uh, at the UC system. I forget which uh, yeah, university. At marketing. At marketing of yeah. all things. But he's made the point that a lot of the studies that say stocks always go up by about 8% or 9% per year, pick whatever thing, they must all start with the U.S. stock market and after World War II when the U.S. was the dominant country in the world, with the dominant economy that hadn't been bombed out. And it's a very unique thing. And he says, if you took that analysis, even just to the US further back, you would see that stocks have uh, sometimes generations of underperformance. Or if you take it to other countries, sometimes there's entire decades where other mm -hmm. stock markets have no real returns. And if you're an investor in emerging markets, you've experienced that in the last decade mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Yeah, of course, um, I read the other day that uh, AI is um, fire 2.0. That is to say, it is the equivalent of the uh, human, I'm not going to say invention of fire, nor discovery of fire, I dare say that, but the uh, a harnessing of fire, like in a fireplace. This is, a, this, this is what AI is to somebody who probably has paid a lot of money every year to have opinions like that. So anyway, what I've learned in my 50 years, yeah, 50 years of doing this, is that um, I'm going to share a little, I'm going to save a little bit of, of mind share for the possibility that, yeah, this is fire 2.0. I'm not going to... I'm much less scornful of the preposterous propositions than I used to be. Okay, one more thing, and then I'm going to turn this over to Evan because he 
He's got a lot of questions on Marty's new book. I've got one last question on your uh, existing canon. And I want to ask about, it was a very good year. I remember reading that. It came out around 2000, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so it was a book about um, years you didn't want to miss, right? Give us a favorite. Well, the, uh, I, I have to say, I, I started that book uh, without any idea what would be the common factors among the uh, best years of the stock market in uh, the 20th century. And uh, this is not the usual way to go about it. Usually it's a journalist who's done all the work beforehand, gets the contract, and then just gets into a book form uh, what he or she has uh, discovered. Uh, but what I found was that there definitely was a common thread, which was uh, it, uh, the big years were coming off a depressed period, but the other critical factor was monetary and that included uh, the, uh, you know, in the years before the Fed uh, existed, uh, which was you know, 1908. Was I wish there were more recovery. of those years. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was still um, uh, a detectable monetary expansion of the, the uh, credit available. And then, of course, uh, coming off the gold standard, vastly increased uh, money for better or for worse, but uh, it had a very positive effect in uh, uh, 1933. So uh, in subsequent years with the Fed and the picture, there was generally a uh, loosening of credit that really sparked those 30 plus percent uh, returns. So if I were to paraphrase your book, I would say it starts off in what uh, three parts. So the, the first part, you talk about what Wall Street focuses on and frequently gets wrong about stocks. Two, you go through examples of the stocks that beat the other 499 stocks in the S&P 500 each year and what led to those outperformance. And in fact, you actually captured one of those in 2020 with Tesla. So, so maybe the best way to begin is what led you to buy Tesla in 2020 to experience that 743% gain, I think it was? 743. And yeah. before tax. Be before tax. <laughs> and do you still hold it? But I'd love to understand what did you see going into 2020 to say this might be the stock that actually beats all their stocks, which it did. And um, how, how did that experience play out? Well, uh, I had got some very good advice about this. Uh, Professor Mikhail Bacard uh, at INSEAD, uh, you know, the premier European and maybe in the world uh, business school by some uh, uh, polls, uh, is not really a, a finance or stock uh, picker in, uh, in terms of what he uh, does, but he uh, focuses on technology and innovation. And he said to me, this company, Tesla, checks every box when we talk to our students about what it requires for a company to succeed, which is somewhat separate from how the stock is going to perform. But he said, this one ticks all the boxes. It's got the most uh, data. Uh, it's the furthest ahead technologically. He just went through a uh, laundry list of it, and uh, it was very uh, persuasive to me and uh, worked out uh, yeah, phenomenally well. Um, now, it was helped. In the, the reason it did so well in uh, 2020 was that there was a lot of skepticism about it. They had, uh, to be fair, uh, not performed extraordinarily well on the production side. They clearly had great technology. They had a a, a dynamic leader, someone who's also able to get his uh, name in the dynamic, paper huh? a lot. Yeah, well, I, I want to be uh, diplomatic about it. Uh, and 
and, and uh, certainly someone who inspired a lot of people. They had a lot of believers, uh, Elon Musk did. But um, they, uh, there was some concern that, well, they haven't really been able to match that kind of magic in actually making cars and getting them out on uh, meeting production schedules and all the rest. So that started to turn around. There were some positive developments that year that really helped to propel the stock. Maybe starting from there, by the end of the book, you take all of the stocks that had outperformed since, I think, 2015. And in fact, you in the very back of the book also include uh, a prior decade's worth of stocks as well. And you try to boil down what are the common factors between all the stocks that beat, you know, the rest of the index? Could you walk us through what the, the main things that you found are both quantitatively and qualitatively? Yeah, well, we also, by the way, uh, go through the things that didn't work. When I say we, uh, I had a lot of help on the uh, number crunching on this. My fellow named John Lee. Uh, and uh, we, we spent a lot of time also on uh, dead ends. I mean, things that we thought were plausible reasons that might cause them. What's one plausible reason that you thought going in here would lead to outperformance, but then just didn't mean bupkis? Well, uh, one was price targets of Wall Street analysts. You know, nobody starts out the year saying this stock is going to be up 150% this year. (laughs) They all did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they usually start out with the price targets that's up 30%, and then when it's up 40%, they raise their price target another 30%. I found a consistent pattern of that, of just following it up. So if you look at the beginning of the year, the price targets weren't uh, useful at all for this specific uh, task of trying to num- identify the number one stock in advance. What was useful was the dispersion among those price targets, and the company performs as expected. There's not going to be much of an effect on the stock because that's already built in the price of the stock. But if you have some spread in those, then at least some of the uh, investors who are following the more pessimistic analysts are going to be surprised if things turn out well or better than expected. So we came up with a uh, brand new metric we call the Fridson Lee statistic, which is a measure of that dispersion in the price targets on Wall Street. You take the highest uh, estimate, subtract the lowest estimate, and divide by the lowest estimate. And pretty consistently, the stocks that were top performers ranked relatively high on that measure, some as much as 100%, uh, which is you know, very considerable dispersion. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, I mean, you're not going to outperform if a company delivers exactly as expected. You need uncertainty, and you need the company to beat that uncertainty. Um, some of the other factors you pointed out were a volatile price history. So a stock that you know is range-bound forever sometimes stays range-bound forever. Um, you also point out one that I thought was interesting, financial leverage. Um, are you pro or con? Well, for this purpose, uh, leverage is definitely a plus. Uh, the you did not have, um, you know, Johnson and Johnson, uh, you know, Microsoft coming out. You know, AAA companies aren't the ones that wind up at the top of the pile. They may be great long-term investments, but again, for this very specific uh, purpose we're looking at, they were mostly uh, speculative grade, double B or below. Um, at the very uh, top were uh, the lowest investment grade rating of triple B. This reminds me of a, of a remark, I think, of Gus Levy, old partner of Goldman Sachs, who uh, compared um, Goldman uh, to Solomon Brothers. And uh, Gus said that um, they are short-term greedy and we are long-term greedy. Mm-hmm. So your, your book is in part about short-term greed. Yeah, and I, I want to emphasize, I'm not urging people to uh-huh. use a big part. <laughs> well, well uh, no, I think that uh, this is something to 
use a small part of your portfolio. It's uh, great to be able to because I think all of us who are interested in the stock market have a little, at least a little bit of that speculative urge. So while we're saying, okay, we have to plan on our children's uh, <laughs> college education or retirement, we have to, you know, diversify, be prudent and so on. But uh, there's that little thing, you know, let's, let's shoot one in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you're walking past the casino, sometimes you put a dollar in the slot machine. Yeah, exactly. And it's the opposite of the uh, meme stocks. One of the, uh, you know, you only lo- uh, live once, uh, characters said, when you find that stock, that meme stock that is really the one to go with, put 98% of your portfolio <laughs> into it. You know, my idea is kind of the, the, the reciprocal of that, you know, a couple of percent. And then, you know, you can go to your investment club and say, wow, I picked the top stock. And, and uh, you know, you have the bragging rights on that. And, and I think in the course of that, you learn uh, something as I did in uh, doing the research on this book about what really drives stock prices. So the, the qualitative factors you laid out in, in the book, you also include more medium-sized market caps because companies with large market caps tend not to outperform. This year, notwithstanding, I think NVIDIA is a $1 trillion market cap and is up 140%. <laughs> yeah, well, now... Well, yeah. They invented Fire, I think. I... Well, they invented FirePoint 2.0. <laughs> um, but you also lay out some qualitative factors as well. How much work is required to actually identify these kinds of stocks? And is this something that the average retail investor can do? Or is this something that, you know, is kind of professionals for uh, personal accounts? Well, if you have the data, it's not uh, unduly difficult. Now, we worked with uh, FactSet on this, and that's probably not something that uh, the typical individual investor is going to, uh, you know, to subscribe to as a service. Um, But uh, the narrowing it down to the stocks that meet the uh, quantitative characteristics is fairly straightforward. Again, just subject to having the, uh, the data uh, uh, management uh, power to do it. Um, but then uh, you do have to look at those more qualitative factors. And uh, I think that's a lot of the fun of it. Of, uh, and, and that's where the Wall Street research actually can be useful because it talks a lot about the company's business model, the competitive environment, their, their strategies, and so on. And that's really what you have to get into. I mean, one of the, uh, those more qualitative factors is being in a business where there's an 800-pound gorilla in the room. Uh, so uh, when advanced uh, micro devices uh, took off and wound up being the uh, top stock, uh, it was helped by Huawei Technologies kind of faltering in its ability to meet the production schedule that it had. Uh, that was something that would have been very difficult to predict beforehand, but it had the potential, uh, whereas if you have a very static uh, market share environment, it, it, you're less likely to break out in that way. Wait, what do you think of the dogs of the Dow idea uh, as, as part of the approach to this uh, this um, kind of treasure hunt, looking, looking for the things that have been beaten down the most? Is that uh, a figure in? Uh, there wasn't really a consistent pattern. That was one of the things we looked at. You know, you know, it must be that the stocks that got beaten up last year are the ones poised to take off this year. But uh, that was the case in some of them, but just was not consistent enough to say, yeah, that's the thing to look at. So, so in your book, you lay out four or five quantitative criteria that pretty much anybody who uses FactSet or Bloomberg could actually put into a screen today and run. Um, you, you say that the top stock for each year for like the last decade met these criteria and then some. But for the stocks who met this criteria but weren't the top performing stock, did they perform on average better than the, than the market? Did they perform in line with the market? Did they perform worse? Yeah, we uh, looked at that and didn't find a clear case that, yeah, all of them did uh, phenomenally well. 
And that point uh, brings up an important point that uh, the the kind of stock that can have a surprise and go to the top can also have a surprise and go uh, to the bottom or close to it. So that's another reason why I'd say don't uh, put a big part of your portfolio into one of these ideas. You know, that it's in the nature. And again, the, as you were suggesting before, those nice steady performers, uh, not too volatile, they're not going to suddenly take off, but they're also not going to be uh, pulling up the rear. I, I want to uh, emphasize uh, one important uh, thing, and that's the name of the, the topic of the title of the book. Again, the picking top stocks, How to Spot Hidden Gems by Martin S. Fritzen. And I noticed that they, that uh, uh, that's blurbed on the, on the dust jacket by none other than, than Ted Aronson, who is one of my favorite Wall Street people, who says, um, in the little book of picking stocks, the polymath... Martin Fritzen shows that shares uh, the wealth with all of us. So well done, Ted. Well done, Marty. And uh, Evan, we can't we can't close this out without another question. I'd like to close it out with um, Marty, in his book, while he was dispelling other Wall Street nostrums, came up with a new um, uh, recession indicator that I'd never heard before, but made me laugh. And I'm going to quote from the book. Only once during my Wall Street years did I ever hear an equity research manager refer to bond ratings. At that time, the U.S. economy was clearly heading into a recession. <laughs> are, are equity guys asking about bonds lately? Uh, not uh, in my experience, but uh, they may start to uh, pretty soon. And that uh, I agree, that would be uh, a change. Yeah, so, so Ted uh, mentioned the word polymath, which of course means, um, what do you think, Evan? What is a good definition of polymath? Somebody who uh, you know knows a lot of stuff? Yeah. Okay, so um, what are Marty's many, many interests is in, um, in crummy movies. <laughs> and I want to know, on behalf of all your fans, Marty, whether you actually watch these dogs. Uh, rarely. Um, I, I, I really work off the reviews. And my favorite <clears throat> is to uh, find a review that got 80 overall score, but there was 120. I'm talking about the, um, the compilers, you know, the collators like uh, Rotten Tomatoes and uh, Metacritic. And once in a while, uh, you'll uh, get something with one reviewer who really hates it. And when I highlight that, I get some complaints about it, and I tell them that humor is not about fairness. By the way, not, not many Wall Street things are about that. <laughs> not even equity is about equity. What else, Evan? What else? Um, what do you, is there any information in years like this year where the best performing stock is also one of the largest stocks? Where, and also where if you look at the eight largest stocks in the S&P 500, they account for more than 100% of all the stock market's returns this year, and the other, you know, 492 are actually down. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, there's always a possibility that there'll be some deviation from the past. The, uh, the pattern historically is that the market cap has tended to be in the lower half uh, of the, uh, uh, the S&P 500. Uh, but there's uh, certainly been a lot of concentration this year, and that hasn't been unprecedented, but I guess it's even more accentuated this year. And um, I, uh, you know, the people like to uh, uh, knock uh, indexing on that basis. And they say, well, yeah, you're just buying more of the stocks that have gone up the most. This has to be a terrible idea, uh, which is fi a fine criticism if you can document that you've outperformed the indexes as an active manager. Um, but, uh, yeah, again, we, uh, it's shaping up. We've got, uh, fortunately, more than half the year to go. So, uh, we'll see what happens during the balance of the year, but uh, you certainly have a, uh, an extreme 
concentration and uh, a very small number of stocks right now. There's there's one stock, right, NVIDIA? Yeah. Okay, can, can I ask you one more bond question? Sure. So you spoke at our 2014 conference, and you, you made a point that I, has really stuck with me, that in 2019, uh, 2009, the U.S. at the time had the highest high-yield uh, default rate in its history. And then in 2010, the default rate fell below its long-term average. And I'm going to quote you from that conference. I would submit is that is physically impossible, but it did actually happen, and I think the only conceivable explanation is the Fed's extraordinary intervention. So bond spreads right now are, you know, their long-term average for non-recessionary months. People are saying if things go wrong, the Fed will cut rates and bail us out. Can the Fed repeat that hat trick? Well, I think we're getting to a point where the uh, inflationary effects have caught up with this. I, I think I'm encouraged, and I don't know if there be a complete agreement around the table, but I, I think that Chairman Powell has gotten that message, uh, shown some backbone in saying, you know, regardless of the uh, effects on the uh, real economy, we do have to break the back of inflation. And uh, that's a real change. And um, you know, the, you've, the uh, counter argument, of course, is that uh, if they uh, keep rates high for an extended period, it will bankrupt the federal government as the debt rolls over. And, you know, that is a... Uh, well, in a, in a, uh, in a, in a, yeah, in a theoretical, um, hypothetical way, it has already bankrupted the Fed. <laughs> the, Fed well, the Fed's yeah. capital is wiped out. And it's, uh, as of September 30th, it was showing an adverse mark of $1.1 trillion against <laughs> a capital base then of $42 billion. <laughs> so uh, that's a little leverage for you. Marty Fritzen, uh, master of uh, high yield of uh, equities, of uh, a billionaire lifestyle. and um, Bad movies. And bad movies <laughs> and uh, all manner of things. So thank you for being with us. Polymath indeed. Evan, thank you. Henry, good to have you around. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, where would we be without you? So uh, let's see, two more things, I think, Evan. One, uh, yeah, subscribe to Grants and uh, come to the... Uh, conference, right? Yeah, we're, we're having a little powwow in uh, New York in October. Yeah, in uh, our 40th. Do you believe it in 40 years doing this? I'm only 28. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, we'll talk to you soon. And uh, until then, thank you. Bye. <laughs>